0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Kek and Sakinki. We were gone for a while. There were several crises to deal with and also laziness. But we are back. And like we promised, we are now changing locations. This episode, we're going to be talking about the imperial era of philosophy in China, which is early imperial era. Early imperial era, yes. Yeah. The imperial era was really like five million years. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> uh. But we're gonna be talking about the early years today, and it's gonna be very excited. So tune in. It's gonna to... be excited. Uh, fuck my <laughs> life. Okay. have not heard our first episode on Chinese philosophy, which uh, delves into ancient Chinese philosophy, then you definitely should. It talks a little bit about the four main philosophies that developed in the early Chinese kingdoms Mm -hmm. and their impact in political theory. And you should really listen to that. It's called Because It Comes From China. Um, And we're going to make a lot of references to it. I I am. Yes. So, I mean, it
1: would be best if you catch up because I sure wasn't caught up. Yeah. I forgot
0: everything. Everything. <laughs> as soon as I started investigating this, but without further ado, you are going to start us off with the historical context, yes. as you guys know that we always give. So yeah, take it away.
1: Yes. So the imperial era was from two twenty one. I have no fucking clue how to say that.
0: Two yeah two twenty one. Two
1: twenty one BCE. Yeah. To nineteen twelve. Yeah. <laughs> to fucking the Titanic sink <laughs> I, I just made that fucking connection wow. <laughs> to the Titanic
0: you think there was some
1: I like, think a butterfly was <laughs> effect yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: anyways if the Titanic had not sunk but... <laughs> or if Impilus China hadn't fallen if trying China hadn't fallen the Titanic I mean I don't know if still like the like...
1: would be nothing would be where happening. would our environment be the... <laughs> <laughs> okay anyway okay. climate change would be rampant <laughs> Maybe. But... Okay. Anyways, this is
0: my fucking. Okay, you're a fucking nightmare. Ever...
1: So, this is from China's unification under the Qin rule until the end of the Qing dynasty. Yeah, it's a
0: letter away. Not to be. Confused. <laughs> Not to be. Yeah. Okay, from the Qin to the
1: Qing. Mm-hmm. So the name China comes from Sanskrit Sina, which derives from
0: Qin dynasty. Oh, that's <laughs> And that's why when when things are, like, um, Chinese, you go, like, Sino-chalala. Amazing. So I'm going to be real honest. I have a vague recollection of how far
1: back we went in the second episode. It was pretty far back. Yeah, but from names that I remember in the historical background, we covered the Shia or the alleged Shia, the Shang, the Zhou, and we went to what we know as the spring and autumn period, Mm -hmm. most known for its advances in philosophy, poetry, the arts... And we saw the rise of Confucianism, Taoism, and Mohist thought. Yes. At the same time, well, no, not at the same time, like right after the spring and autumn period, different states started to pl- proclaim themselves as sovereign. Yeah. This then led to what they call the Warring States period, in which seven states fought for control because they considered themselves sovereign, but none of them felt confident enough to claim the mandate of heaven that the Zhou still had. Yeah. So to make things simpler, Simpler. Yeah. Anyways, this man called Ying Cheng basically won. He subdued and unified all the other six states under his rule and pro- proclaimed himself Shi Huangdi, which is the first emperor of China.
0: Nice. Now
1: let's get into the Qin and the Han. Yummy. We briefly spoke about these two in the episode, in episode two. <laughs> you guys wanna go back there and let me know if we actually covered anything about these two? Just leave us a comment on our fucking Instagram. Be like, Be like, yeah, like what okay. the fuck,
0: bitch. <laughs> So recycling content already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <oops. laughs>
1: Anyways, the Qin and the, the Han dynasties were the initial period of what we know as the Chinese Empire. During these two dynasties, a number of institutions were established that laid the foundation for the basic political system for the next two thousand years. The Qin dynasty was the first to unite. Uh, China as a country under an Emperor instead of a ruling clan. A bureaucratic government was introduced and was continued by the less extreme Han Dynasty. Well, I think that would be right. uh, Qin Shi Huang, so the first Emperor of the Qi, ruled with a motherfucking iron fist. So he centralized power uh, of the Empire after he took the throne and set up a system of laws. He standardized units of weight measurement currency and oh, even a writing system. That's so cool. Shi so Huan also strengthened the infrastructure of roads, so he helped increase trade within China yeah. to ease, you know, travel and trade. Mm-hmm. He built the Grand Canal of the South, he redistributed land, and initially he was a very fair and just ruler. He, however. <laughs> 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 How the turn table. Yeah. <laughs> so he suppressed all other philosophies except legalism. Yummy. He ordered the destruction of every history or philosophy book that did not correspond to legalism his family line, the state of the Shin, or himself. Yikes. So, legalism, for all those who don't remember, me. <laughs> Mainly, <laughs> I had to go look this up. <laughs> is the belief that human beings are more inclined to do wrong than right because they're motivated entirely by self-interest and require strict laws to control their impulses. This was Han Fei
0: Yeah, Fei Chi? Fei Yeah. Yep. Yes. Episode two. Yes. Such a thought did not occur to the Europeans until like the 15th century. Yeah. So Confucianism was especially banned. Yeah. Because of it its insistence on the
1: basic goodness of human beings and its teaching that people only needed to be gently directed towards good and they would behave well. Yeah. So the doctrine of legalism that Gaius Qin emphasized a strict adherence to a legal code and absolute power of the emperor which was fucking amazing in periods of military expansion but a nightmare in periods of peace. So suppressing right. most like it's it's no it's no surprise that suppressing most philosophies and general freedoms, so including freedom of speech, made him progressively more unpopular. Keep in mind, this was happening shortly after a hundred schools of thought were a thing. Right. So, so
0: uh, at least people in the elite were used to being able to explore and train, Exactly. Right? Yeah.
1: So we went from this period of just an explosion of
0: thought, knowledge.
1: knowledge, just everything was happening. Then we went to war and this structure worked. Yeah. But after war, people wanted to go back to that. Right. And it didn't go very well.
0: Shit, okay.
1: Then came the Han. Uh, after the Qin were overthrown, we basically see a 180 in terms of philosophy, because legalism was abandoned in favor of Confucianism. The Han Dynasty ruled in China from um, 206 <laughs> BCE to 220 AD. This period is mainly known for drama within the royal court, love, but also because it, was, it had an incredible influence in the course of Chinese history. So the Han promoted... Confucianism as a state religion and connected the Silk Road to Europe. So Wow. I love that. Yeah. But they also invented paper and I think it's mentioned so little. Like in they're passing? Like, yeah, they're like, you know, they connected Europe with the Silk Road, whatever. <laughs> yeah. and they also invented paper.
0: <laughs> there was also, I think, some paper involved. Yeah. yeah, yeah so anyway.
1: So politically, what we see with the Han Dynasty on Lake Shihuan Di is that they practice tolerance for all other philosophies. And mm-hmm. as a result... Literature, education, and education flourished under, like in this, in the kingdom. They reduced taxes, disbanded the army, who nevertheless, anytime he said, you know, Simon says, everybody right, just fucking right. ran. We also see that they reformed transportation, roads, trade, and they created a lot of public projects. They employed millions of, of workers in state programs. Wow. They incre- the increasing wealth led to a rise of large estates. And general prosperity, but for peasants, life wasn't that great.
0: I mean, like, is it ever? But I just want to make a note here. Mm-hmm. We can tell the fact that you said millions. This speaks to the stability of Chinese civilization at this time. The fact that cities could grow or kingdoms could grow to have millions of people exactly. so early. Exactly. But let me. This is the Go part ahead. that I told you like fucking four days ago that you were gonna like. Oh yeah. Nice.
1: I'm so, so ready. So interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> the first rulers of the Han Dynasty had some influential economic ministers Ooh. who employed the Taoist... Not practiced, huh? The concept okay. of Wu Wei in action. Oh! Do you see where I'm going with this? I
0: think I see what you're going
1: So basically, this motherfucker Emperor Wu, who actually brought the empire to its Senate, used Confucianism to consolidate power as it emphasized stability and order in a well-structured society. So Confucianism was made exclu- the exclusive philosophy because this man needed to control the empire. Of but course. the first ministers were pretty much free market motherfuckers. Oh. Exactly. Oh, stop. Look, look, look. We keep it keeps getting better. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> My, heart. My heart. Let me go I one
0: minute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let me go one second into back into Confucianism. So it never truly died during the chin. Of course. Right.
0: Shocker. Right.
1: <laughs> so some dudes kept some books under, you know, yeah. mainly um, professors and, and yeah. So in 136 BCE, so like a couple years later, later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a program started in the Imperial University that cre- that kind of taught five classics of Confucianism. Oh. And by the 2nd century, so 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. The university had 30,000 students <gasps> studying Confucianism. 30,000 students in those clubs. Yeah. So it was a thing. They liked it. It's a lot of students. So after Emperor Wu, the empire slipped into gradual stagnation and decline. Economically, oh. the state treasury was strained excessive com- because of excessive campaigns and projects by the state. Oh. While land acquisitions by elite families gradually drained the tax base. Oh my god. Basically, the empire grew a lot and then they were like, control yeah shit can
0: you imagine
1: that's insane but i mean i i don't find it weird that they fell into
0: this inaction shit
1: when trade was so big of course
0: because it just happened by itself exactly merchants kept coming in and out of the country exactly. yeah and they expanded to europe so right. everything's bigger yeah i thought that was pretty cool it is pretty cool so okay yeah, that's my ending huh? all right that's for historical context. I'm going to go into one of the two philosophies we are going to be talking about today, which are, uh, which, actually, should I say yours from now Yeah. All right. So the two we're going to be talking about today are Buddhism and Xuanzhui. Yeah. Ah, uh, did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I <laughs> <you> mean it. Did I say that right? <laughs> oh, Chinese native speaker. Um, I mean, according to you two. Okay. Yes. I mean, I'm near enough. Before I start talking about Buddhism, I want to give you guys a disclaimer. Buddhism is an extremely ancient philosophy slash religion. And anywhere it developed, it developed with different schools, different, uh, you know, branches, teachers, texts, all of these things. So I'm going to be speaking about a very specific branch in the development of Buddhism which, although it existed as well in India, may have looked differently than the original Sanskrit texts. I have to make it a point here that the history of Buddhism in China literally spans across time, a.k.a. since the first century, to now, as well as space, a.k.a. across the different kingdoms that then came after the Han declined, which were known as the Six Dynasties. So explaining Buddhism as a single movement would be doing it a disservice to the way philosophy organically grew in China during the Six Kingdoms. So I'm going to do my best to speak about as much as I can in the simplest terms so that our listeners can have specific takeaways of the impact of Buddhist philosophy slash religion in China. Going into it. Like a lot of religions, Buddhism arrived in China through missionaries who probably reached the Empire through the Silk Road that like you mentioned. Uh, so during the Qin and the Han, there was very uh, stable trade and a lot of people kept coming in and out and there was a lot of you know trade between Mesopotamia and the Indian subcontinent and China. <clears throat> so missionaries probably came from there because India at this time was flourishing. With philosophy and religion, and they came in order to proselytize right around the first century C.E. There are several hypotheses as to where it first arrived and was practiced, but like it got there, so like who cares? Like there's some th- historians go really into it about like maybe here in the north or through boats in the south, but like I'm not gonna get into it because like who gives a <laughs> bottom line? If the Indians came, <laughs> the first documented translation of Buddhist scriptures from various Indian languages into Chinese occurs in one. 148 CE with the arrival of the Parthian prince turned monk and Shigao probably did not say that correctly but he worked oh and right now i am actually plagiarizing the wikipedia page of chinese buddhism so you guys know he worked to establish buddhist temples in Luoyang which is in about the it's in western... no cierto como se llama la de it's in eastern china um, <laughs> and He organized a translation of Buddhist scriptures into Chinese, testifying to the beginning of a wave of Central Asian Buddhist, uh, basically like evangelism that was set to last several centuries. Some sources say that the deeply Confucianist culture at the time, so as you were saying, they uh, it pretty much survived through the Qin censorship and into the Han, and it's said that the deeply Confucianist culture at the time rejected Buddhist teaching. Because Buddhist teachings kind of encouraged a a monastic living. So giving up on things and like just not going into the material world. And and Confucianism really... How do you say And Confucianism encouraged being a part of society, Mm -hmm. an active part of society. But we do see soon enough that Han Academia was transcribing and translating Buddhist literature. An explanation for this is, quote, that the concept of monasticism and the aversion to social affairs seemed to contradict the long-established norms, so like I said, Mm -hmm. and standards established by Chinese society. (laughs) Some even declared that Buddhism was harmful to the authority of the state and that Buddhist monasteries contributed nothing to the economic prosperity of China, that Buddhism was barbaric and undeserving of Chinese cultural traditions. So it was kind of like an awkward initial stage because yeah. Buddhists came in and they were like, hey, we're going to establish, you know, schools of monks that become basically dynasties in themselves because they're monastic lines. Like, there has to be a successor. Oh, okay. And you give sense. up public life and all these things. And at the time, you know, China was really flourishing. So Confucianist, the Confucianist general culture of the kingdoms were like, mm-hmm. um, no. <laughs> However, soon enough, people realized that Buddhism looked a lot like the valleys of Taoism, which hmm, is. I wonder who <laughs> that was. Yeah. And are we gonna talk about yeah. him? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something characteristic about Chinese Buddhism is that it quickly merged and evolved with the Taoism that was practiced during the Han Dynasty. For a long time, actually, the two were confused for each what? other and thought of as a single religion. What? In fact, the Taoist concept for immortality, Wu Wei, ah! was likened to the Buddhist nirvana. Oh. But, yeah, for a while, as people were getting used to this new introduction of a value system, they kind of taught this off-brand, big plastic bag of cereal with no name, you got a Walmart kind of Buddhism that mixed with Taoist and Confucianist <laughs> values <laughs> and terminology and into this big melting pot called Gentry Buddhism. Ooh, <sighs> this is a lot. This is because, and here comes the fast facts of the emergence of Buddhism, there are hella schools in Buddhism, like there are so many branches, I could not even... I'm going to talk about one and it, like a little bit of its derivative and it's already confusing to me, but the first to have been established in China is thought to be the Dharma Gupta, Sorry, the Dharmaguptaka, but I can't really go into this because as you mentioned before, this was really during the Qin Dynasty They burned it. So, yeah. yeah. Because of this, a lot of the written evidence there may have been for the early influences of Buddhism in then China were destroyed. However, then came the Han, which was influenced by Confucianism, Mm -hmm. books were no longer burned, we could keep track of knowledge, and knowing which schools established themselves helps us keep track of the monastic lineages that established themselves during the Han. And because after this awkward period of like, no, we didn't like you, but then uh, the merging of values and teachings. And I think that this is a constant theme in learning philosophy in China is that religion and philosophy were kind of, they ebbed and flowed into each other. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really a, a a religion aspect to it that required intense loyalty to a leader or God. Okay. Which I think m- made space for the teachings and values to mix.
1: Oh, one comment.
0: Yeah. I think this is pure personal
1: commentary. <laughs> One of the main reasons why Buddhism had the chance to mix with Taoism so much is that the guy I'm going to talk about, B, yeah. he was the first to separate Taoism as a religion oh. from Taoism as a philosophy. He was like, oh. okay, I see the supernatural aspect.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're going to disregard them. Yeah, it's like, a, we're going to kind of like break this down. Exactly. Okay. Nice. All right. So, Perfect. because of these things, during the Han, Buddhism flourished and intermixed with other Chinese traditions and religions or teachings. The Han fell around the 3rd century CE, and China fell into splintered kingdoms again, like I said, the Six Dynasties period, and throughout the following century, Buddhism developed in different forms across different areas in China. During this time, Western, aka Indian, monks kept traveling into Chinese kingdoms to proselytize and establish monastic lines. And coming to my character of today, one of the most important and recognized of these is a man named... Kumara Jiva. I'm sorry to anyone who speaks the language that this name comes from, but let's go. He was born in 343 or 344 CE and died in 413 which is kind of tragic. You'll see right now. He was one of the greatest translators of Buddhist scripts from Sanskrit into Chinese, and he helped divulge one of the main schools of Buddhism that emerged at the time, the Mahayana, which is the one I'm going to be focusing on today, and the very little that I can find out about it. He arrived in China after the conquest of Kucha, which was... (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, after the conquest of Kucha, which was a, one of the Indian kingdoms, during which he was captured and imprisoned for some years in China. In 401, he was released after gaining the favor of the imperial family in Chang'an, namely the king Yao Xing of the later Qin mm-hmm. So of the declining Qin, basically. <laughs> Due to the efforts of Kumara Jiva, Buddhism in China became not only recognized for its practice methods, so... Let me go back here a little bit. He gained the favor of this king Yao Xing through his teachings and his uh, and how he was able to translate not only like translate literally Sanskrit into Chinese, but really accommodate the concepts into the language and culture of China, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very important. And due to his efforts, Buddhism in China became not only recognized for its practice methods, but also as a high philosophy and religion. The arrival of Kumara also set the standard for Chinese translation of Buddhist texts, effectively doing away with previous concept matching systems. So what we think when we think concept matching is that up until then, translation had just kind of been like, okay, so literally this is what this text says. Mm-hmm. And like I'm saying right now, what this man did is that he said, okay, but this is how it adapts to your life and your culture. Really cool. It's not only that x means x is that x means what w means to you mm-hmm. right which i find super cool yeah that's really and the one that he focused on was the mahayana and he worked <laughs> he worked translating the text of a sub sort of section of the mahayana called the madhyamika totally americanized translation of that word But according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Madhyamika, which is Sanskrit for intermediate, is an important school of the Mahayana, which is Sanskrit for great vehicle. And its name derives from its having sought a middle position between the realism. So, of course, there were Buddhist thoughts within Buddhism. There were different schools of thought. Mm -hmm. So the Sarvastivada was the doctrine that all is real. And the idealism of the Yogacara, which meant the mind only, which I think sort of, like, I'm not going to go into it, but I think sort of can be likened to the earlier Athenian philosophies of what we consider reality to be, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Whether everything exists in our minds. So the world of forms yeah, and all that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, but in a way more religious way. Is reality up to me or does reality actually exist kind of thing? Okay. And the Madhyamika was a school that tried to kind of be in the middle of this. And the three most important texts of the school are the (laughs) Treaties of the Middle Way, the Twelve Gates Treaties, and the 100 Verses Treaties, all of which uh, this man worked in translating. Besides this, what is the Mahayana? The Mahayana teaches that anyone can aspire to achieve awakening, which is, I would say, is kind of like nirvana but there was kind of this concept that only the buddha could achieve mm-hmm. awakening and the mahayana taught like no um you can be- become a bodhisattva which i think <laughs> from my understanding of the readings that i did was someone who achieved uh, enlightenment as the buddha did and for mahayana buddhism awakening consists in understanding the true nature of reality while non-Mahayana doctrine emphasizes the absence of the self in persons, Mahayana, though ex- Mahayana thought extends this idea to all things, the radical extension of the common Buddhist doctrine of dependent arisal, the idea that nothing has an essence, and that the existence of each thing is dependent on the existence of other things, which is referred to as emptiness. Mm. I think Ooh. that the reason why this must have resonated with a Confucianist society is not so much in the religion way or like the spiritual way of thinking Mm -hmm. but in this sense that we exist in relation to others Mm -hmm. which was an extremely Confucianist tradition we exist in relation to the other people in our society and everything is dependent on each other in order to flourish and grow and exist properly So, I mean, that's about it on what I have about Buddhism. That was the main school that grew. There were several other schools that grew in Buddhism in China. But I think what I find most interesting, because I can't really delve into everything, is how Buddhism came in to kind of tether many of the other religions and philosophies together in China. And how this was shaped by China's trade routes. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were so open to trade with India... That it led to new religions and new, you know, and new traditions in China. Some of which survive today in its general culture. I mean, also barely, but because communism. But, Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, and now China boasts one of the largest Buddhist populations, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we're leaving it at today. You can listen to the next part of this episode next week, coming out on Monday. We know that this episode is coming a little late in the week, but the other one is not going to take as long. So you can go listen to that. If you want to know when or more about the topics that we're coming out with, you can follow us on Instagram at at or email us at keckandsakinky at gmail.com with any questions that may arise or any comments that you want to make. Any critiques. Exactly. Please don't, but yes. But yes. You uh, can. <laughs> so stay tuned to what we have to say about other schools of philosophy that emerged in the early imperialist era of China. Thank you.